Well, hello and welcome to a special World Encephalitis Day edition of the Encephalitis podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Tom Pollock from King's College in London and Dr. Jesus Ramirez Bermudez of the National Institute of Neurology and Neurosurgery in Mexico. They're here to talk about two new super important research papers around mental health and encephalitis. Now, to our listeners and viewers, we're going to be touching on some difficult areas in this podcast, including more broader mental health issues. We're also going to be touching upon some difficult things such as self-harm and suicide. If this is something which may lead to difficult emotions for you or someone you know, please know that there is help out there. In the links to this episode, you're going to find some extra resources which we've put together around mental health, which we believe will be helpful to anyone affected by encephalitis and also their family and friends. This includes links to useful organisations around the world, a mental health fact sheet, lots of sources of support and information. And don't forget, if you want to speak to one of our support team, they're here for you as well. You can find more information about how to connect with the support team in the links in this podcast. But to start, welcome Tom and Jesus. Thank you for joining the podcast today and talking about your very important research. Hi, Ava. It's a pleasure to see you. Hello, Thomas. Hello, everybody. Hi, thank you, Ava. Thanks, Jesus. It's lovely to see you again. Great. Well, it's great to have you both on the Encephalitis podcast. So I think it would probably be really helpful if we could just firstly introduce yourselves to our listeners and talk a little bit about your background in medicine. Jesus, let's start with you. Thank you, Ava. So I'm a clinical neuropsychiatrist working at the National Institute of Neurology and Neurosurgery of Mexico. It's a large um, research and clinical center in, in Mexico City. And one of the main problems we uh, we care for is um, acute uh, encephalitis, uh, mainly autoimmune encephalitis, but also many other neurological conditions. And myself, uh, I've been working uh, for the last uh, 20 years with, um, with persons that um, have mental health problems that are based on brain disease. So that's uh, mainly my background and um, that's the reason why I'm here. Thank you Hazis and over to you Tom. Thanks Ava, sorry there's a bit of an echo there. Um, yeah so, so um, I'm, I'm a neuropsychiatrist as, as well so I'm, I'm a psychiatrist although I have had some training uh, in, in neurology and um, I'm also a researcher at King's College London and um, really for the last I suppose it's 10 or more like 12 years now I've been working with patients with uh, encephalitis and particularly with autoimmune uh, encephalitis. I lead the autoimmune encephalitis pathway at King's College Hospital uh, and at King's Health Partners uh, in South London and I, I run an autoimmune encephalitis clinic with my uh, neurology colleague Dr uh, Esther Coutinho. Uh, but more generally my research is very much in the, the, the mental health of people with encephalitis um, but also the impact of brain inflammation on mental health and well-being more generally. Thanks for that, Tom. We'll, we'll, we'll stick with you for a minute. If you could briefly summarise for us how mental health can occur in relation to encephalitis, because I think it's fairly multifaceted, but you'll, you'll need to try and make it simple for us. Yeah, OK. So, so I guess the first thing is you say, how can mental health occur? And 
well, it, it, it's worth saying, you know, we all have health, we all have physical health, and we all have our mental health. And mental health is a good thing. It's 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 what allows us to to thrive. But of course, we ha we have our, our our moments or times of good mental health and our times of of, of poor mental health, um, just as we do with physical health. And I guess in with reference to encephalitis, the first thing to to sort of bear in mind is it doesn't, as far as we know, discriminate in terms of who it affects. And so it's just as likely to affect somebody who, for whatever reason, already has a history of mental illness or a history of uh, 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 mental health challenges or, or even a predisposition to that as it is to affect somebody who has no such history. So that's going to affect someone's journey when they do actually get encephalitis. And I guess when someone actually has it, there are three sort of phases that it's worth thinking about. The initial symptoms, what are the symptoms that they present with? Um, well, often these are actually psychiatric symptoms. People can present with, uh, with anxiety, with agitation, uh, with changes in their mood, um, to the extent that sometimes um, they don't actually look like they have a neurological disorder. They look like they have a psychiatric disorder, at least in the initial stages, although more often than not, this does tend over time to end up looking much more like a neurological disorder. But that means it's really important to spot these disorders. And, and, and often it's actually people in the mental health professions who see these patients at first. But I guess when the patient is very, very unwell indeed, and they're in hospital and they're finally getting the sort of care that they, they require, usually in a neurology ward or a med medical ward, often they're very agitated and distressed um, sometimes they will have you know, severe confusion, uh, often sort of psychotic symptoms or, or very bad anxiety sim symptoms. And so here, really, the priority is, is, is making sure that the person is safe, making sure that their levels of distress are as well treated as, as, as possible, um, at the same time that all the other medical treatment is happening with, with this patient. And then finally, and this is really why we're here to talk today, and I, I, I think this is an area that is just we're beginning to realize how important it is and the sort of enormity of it is that, you know, once a person leaves hospital, that's when their journey starts. Uh, and um, we know, we've always known that people with encephalitis meet, well, they have a, a, a lot of sort of challenges with their with their mental well-being. Um, it has always appeared to us as though there, there may be an increased incidence of, of particular mental illnesses. But to date, there hasn't been a huge amount of research or at least systematic research looking at all areas of this. Um, but that's changed and that's something I hope we can talk about today. Thanks, Tom. Well, let's start with that. Jesus, let's start with your research that we focused on for World Encephalitis Day 2023. Tell us a little bit about what you focused on and what some of your key findings were. Well, uh, I actually agree with uh, what Thomas was saying previously uh, regarding the fact that uh, any of us can suffer from uh, autoimmune encephalitis. Uh, I think you say en en encephalitis? How, how do you pronounce the, the word? I'm sorry, because my English is a little rusty. No, it's perfect. So in the UK, we like to be different. So we call it encephalitis, but in North America, okay. it's encephalitis. Okay, so I've been corrupted by the Americans. That's why I was saying encephalitis. Well, anyway, as Mexico is part of North, North America, I will say encephalitis, if you allow me. So I, I, I was um, saying that I agree with Tom uh, regarding the fact that 
at least in our study, which is uh, now a, a large study from the past seven years, in which we have followed through like uh, about 200 persons that suffered from encephalitis. Uh, and these uh, patients, these, these persons mostly have all kinds of mental illness, mental health problems, but uh, perhaps the most common are symptoms of psychosis, like uh, Thomas was was saying. Um, in the acute phase of the of the illness, uh, the the person may experience uh, hallucinations, delusions, and some other symptoms that um, some somehow are not always understood by our culture, our, our society. So perhaps one of the first messages is that uh, if someone faces that kind of experience, we also have to think in medical terms, if, if the person is not suffering actually from uh, encephalitis. Well, uh, having said that, uh, I will focus in, in the current study, which is a study of 120 uh, persons that suffered from anti-NMDAR encephalitis, with, which is uh, perhaps the perhaps it's the most common form of autoimmune encephalitis, or at least the the one that is uh, most uh, well known, uh, with mo with uh, a larger body of scientific research, and uh, we focused and in one particular problem, which is um, suicidal behavior. Uh, experiencing uh, suicidal thoughts and engaging in suicidal behavior. So it's, I think it's a, a problem that is very relevant for the patients, for their families, and of course, for the mental health professionals. So, so that, that, that is a brief introduction to, to this uh, study. Thanks, Jesus. Well, Tom, same question to you. Tell us a little bit about your study, which we're also focusing on for World Encephalitis Day 2023. But it was um, conducted quite differently to the study that Jesus conducted, um, but still came up with some surprising results. Yeah, so um, we we were really interested in what existed out there in terms of the studies looking at the mental health of people who'd had encephalitis. We were interested in all kinds of encephalitis, not just autoimmune. Um, and sure, there, there, there is a literature out there. There are studies that have looked at this, but they either focus on just one kind of encephalitis, say herpes simplex or Japanese encephalitis uh, or LGI-1 encephalitis, for example. And, and not only that, but very frequently they'll look at one particular group. So they'll look at young people and children, or they'll look at sort of old, older people, or it's very geographically restricted. Um, or, and as a psychiatrist, this is the thing that sort of bothered me most, is that they, they, they looked at a really restricted set of symptoms, of mental health symptoms. It was either all about anxiety or all about uh, low mood or, or, or personality change. And actually, I think to get a really good idea of the mental health outcomes of encephalitis, you need to be looking across the board at the whole variety and breadth of mental health symptoms. Um, so that's what we did. We 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 decided to to um, to set up a a, a large scale international survey, uh, which, with the help of the Encephalitis Society, we were able to to advertise, inviting anyone over sixteen who has had encephalitis of any type uh, to answer. Um, a lot of questions about their experiences, their mental health currently and in the past, 
what they feel might have caused their mental health problems, asking about a few new symptom groups which haven't really been um, asked about before, uh, the kind of help that they've received for their encephalitis, just to get as comprehensive a snapshot of the kind of problems that people face and the kind of help that they receive after encephalitis. Okay, well, Hazis first and, and then perhaps Tom again, I think, it, it, give us um, an outline. What in each of your views are the headlines from each of your studies? Okay, so um, in, in, in the study that we conducted in, in Mexico, I, I would say that this is a prospective study uh, in, in, the clinical, in the clinical field. And um, by looking at uh, these 120 patients that uh, suffered from anti-NMDR uh, encephalitis, we uh, found out that actually 13%, which is 15 patients, had um, an important features of uh, suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Um, so of course, when, when we think in, in terms of suicide and suicidal behavior, we think mostly um, in the social problems that are often related or mostly related to this kind of behavior. So I would like to, to highlight that, of course, everybody with suicidal thoughts or behavior needs to uh, receive the psychosocial interventions that are necessary. But uh, nonetheless, uh, some uh, neurological problems also increase the risk of suicidal behavior. This has been observed in other autoimmune conditions, for instance, uh, multiple sclerosis. But in our patients specifically, perhaps the most important message is that these patients had acute suicidal behavior related to psychotic symptoms, a form of psychotic depression, which is a very severe form, form of uh, depressive state with hallucinations and delusions. But also I would like to highlight, highlight that these patients had an excellent outcome with uh, the medical treatment, which is mostly um, a treatment, an immunological treatment, and also uh, psychiatric and psychotherapeutic treatment. No? Uh, so most of the patients had an excellent outcome. So I would also like to bring hope to, to the patients with encephalitis uh, as they may go through a very difficult time when they have the acute uh, or subacute form of the disease but most of them had a very good outcome in terms of psychosis, depression, and suicidal behavior. Thank you, Jesus. And, and I think that's an important point that I hope we'll return to before the end um, of this podcast. So I, I think, you know, these, what you're talking about are patients who are very early on in their encephalitis, um, their mental health problems, their suicidal thoughts are created as a direct result of the neurological problems that are going on as a result of them becoming very poorly. But with, I think what I hear is that with quick diagnosis, quick recognition, diagnosis and treatment, these patients can do very well. And I hope that we'll return to that. Um, Tom, I, same question to you, um, uh, really. What, what are the headlines you think from um, the survey that you conducted with? I think it was over 400 patients. 
Yeah, so so we were delighted. We got an amazing response, and of course, we have the Encephalitis Society in large part to to thank for that. Um, we had four hundred and forty five uh, respondents, just over half of whom were from the UK, about a quarter from the US. But I think thirty one different countries were represented in total. That sounds great, but uh, it's only about two percent were actually representing low and middle in income countries, and as so often in scientific research, these countries are, are massively underrepresented. And of course, just to say at this point, we need to do more research looking at the outcomes of encephalitis in, in these communities and these in these kind of harder, harder to reach groups. Um, there was a mix of infectious and autoimmune uh, encephalitis. Uh, so I think infectious was about 60, just over 60%. Um, autoimmune, I think around 30, and then, and then sort of unknown or, or, or unclear um, origin for the rest. Um, and I think it was an average of about seven years after diagnosis uh, that, that, that people were filling out this questionnaire. And I suppose the, what, the first take home message is psychiatric problems, mental health difficulties are really very common in this group. So we're seeing rates of 70% of common mental health problems, anxiety, uh, low mood, uh, sleep problems, um, at lower rates at around sort of 50%, we're seeing things like uh, unexpected crying, we're seeing rates of, of, of aggression at around 30%, but even symptoms that are thought to be quite rare, things like hallucinations, um, things like uh, you know paranoia, all occurring at rates much higher than we, than we really expected. Not only that, but when people spoke about diagnoses that they'd actually received from their doctor following their encephalitis, uh, again, we were surprised at, at seeing, you know, nearly half of, um, of you know, respondents uh, had received an anxiety disorder uh, diagnosis. There's a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, about one-fifth of people out there. So there is clearly a lot of need. We were able to do a more structured approach using a, a screening questionnaire to kind of validate whether these sort of self-reported diagnoses were probably accurate. And there was pretty good concordance. So we're, we're fairly kind of convinced that that the, the reliability of the people who were answering the, this questionnaire was, was pretty good. Um, one of the questions we were interested in is how good is the treatment that people think that they've got? We know that uh, people often just aren't asked about their mental health problems when they see the doctor, uh, let alone necessarily directed to the right service. Uh, and it was clear that the majority of patients feel that, that either they had no mental health provision or it was suboptimal. And funnily enough, we, we found that the, 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 the highest levels of dissatisfaction uh, were actually coming from the United Kingdom, uh, which was uh, fairly diff you know, difficult to, to, to read and you know, signs that we, we really need to do better. Um, Touching on the research that Jesus was just presenting um, about suicide, and again, I guess this is one of the other take-home messages, we were, I guess, shocked is the, the only way to put it, to see that uh, over 35% of our respondents um, had been suicidal since their encephalitis diagnosis. Um, and in total out of the entire kind of group of respondents um, under 4.4% of patients had actually uh, attempted suicide. So there are high levels of distress um, in, in this group. And clearly, at least from the perspective of the patients, although I should add from, from my perspective as well, um, that, that they're probably not getting quite the kind of service provision and support that, that they need. Um, 
other interesting bits and pieces, we, we threw in a few questions about symptoms that have never been asked before in encephalitis, particularly sensory hypersensitivities, which is something that so many of my patients complain about. Uh, hypersensitivity to light and sound, over 75% of people reporting this you know, fascinating symptom. So we've got a lot of work to do to, to try and unpack um, what, what, what's going on here. But I think really uh, overall to me, this is a wake up call about this is a disorder that sure, it has a devastating, terrifying acute phase, but the after effects can be felt for, for really many, many years to come. And it looks like we're probably not doing quite enough to support people with those after effects. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Uh, you make some really important points there. Um, I think they are quite shocking statistics um, uh, in terms of people who had who had thought about suicide um, following encephalitis. Um, I, I think also your point around people us not knowing enough about people in low to middle income countries, and and I'm hoping that as we go forward, that the work that we're developing with the World Health Organization will be able to begin to address some of these things. So I think it's really timely that that yourself and Jesus are doing this work now, which hopefully can feed in um, uh, into into that kind of work going forward. Um, and I think. Um, you know, what you've both described really validates why this year in 2023, we decided to focus on mental health and suicide and self-harm because it's a difficult topic. And I, I will talk about that um, as, as we conclude the podcast, but it was a difficult decision, but I feel very much the right decision to begin having this conversation and understanding because we can't fix anything unless we understand it. Um, and I hope that it will empower some people to be able to reach out for help when they listen to this podcast who otherwise might be suffering in, in silence, which we know um, is a problem um, for some people. So um, will you both be continuing to research in this area? Tom, you first and then Jesus. Uh, yeah, 100%. This has given us so many leads that we're interested in following up. Um, I think, I mean, sort of two or three main areas. The first of all is, you know, we now know that these problems exist. We have an idea to the extent to which they exist now. Um, what we don't know is when someone becomes unwell and they come to hospital with encephalitis, who are going to be the one, who are going to be the patients who, who go on to develop the mental health problems in the months or years down the line and who aren't? So one of the things that we're trying to work out is how can we predict the longer term mental health outcomes of these patients and whether that's using kind of clinical data or data about you know that people's kinds of background or whether it's actually using biological data immunological data neuroimaging data uh, we're interested in looking at all of these and trying really to be able to predict who are the people that we need to focus our energies on on the other hand um, i'm working with some wonderful psychologists now um, think about how can we personalize or, or sort of specialized psychological care for people who've had encephalitis. Because at the moment, when people get psychological therapies, it's pretty much the same playbook as people with a sort of acquired brain injury or traumatic brain injury. And I think there are some aspects about encephalitis that are particular to encephalitis. And if there's a way that we can sort of, you know, come up with a model of psychological well-being, mental well-being following encephalitis, um, and use that as a basis for people to help treat common or, or even severe mental health problems in, in encephalitis, then at least we know that 
we're all going to be on the same page. And I think this is really going to help patients going forward. Yeah, I think I think that's an important point. And I think that the small bits of research that have been done about encephalitis patient outcomes and encephalitis patient quality of life, when you compare them to some of the other groups that you mentioned there, such as uh, traumatic brain injury or um, stroke, for example, um, the encephalitis patients invariably um, score worse on some of these scores. And, and I've argued for a long time that I don't think it's because their brain injury is any worse, but I think their experience, um, how they experience life after encephalitis is, is, a, is a lot different. Um, and I think that contributes significantly to their more poor scores, their more poor experience in terms of their quality of life. But Jesus, are you going to be continuing your research in this area? Yes, of course. Well, uh, first of all, because it's a, a real uh, problem uh, that had been somehow neglected in, 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 other, in other years. When, when I was uh, making my residency in, in psychiatry in the, in the Institute of Neurology, it wasn't an important topic and it has gained a lot of scientific attention. So I think it's a, a real problem in which we can make a difference. But um, the, the kind of research we are uh, trying to do now is uh, to follow up the patients and see the outcomes in, even in the long term, because uh, we have be, de been dealing mostly with the acute uh, mental health problems in, in encephalitis, but there are also other problems in, in the long term outcomes, like cognitive problems, affective problems, and sometimes even uh, problems of psychosis or other kind of, of uh, problematic uh, behaviors. So um, what, what I think it's most important is how can we improve these outcomes? And I think that we need to focus on um, a multidisciplinary care because uh, right now we don't have a, a very integrated mo model that considers uh, the psychosocial interventions that are necessary in this population and the medical treatments, the psychopharmacological resources. And the problem of suicidal behavior is exemplary in, in that uh, sense because uh, these patients need a multidisciplinary care. So that's what we are trying to focus now. Oh, well, I'm really pleased to hear that. Um, I, I'm interested to know, um, Tom, we'll jump to you first. Do you think there is sufficient awareness in medical circles around encephalitis and the potential for mental health issues? I know when we three were, were putting together our collaborations for World Encephalitis Day, I think we, we found maybe four to six papers that touched upon this topic. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's my question. Do you think there's sufficient awareness in medical circles about encephalitis and the potential for mental health? So I think there are a few different factors. There's the amount of research that's done. And I think we've established that to date that's not been great, although hopefully this will represent a bit of a turning point for that. And then there's the difference, I think, between awareness and what you do with that awareness. And I think... I think to an extent, lots of people are aware of the mental, that there are mental health challenges, but it's often challenging to know what to do with that. And there was a, um, a study in the UK just last year, I think, showing that patients with neurological illnesses feel that they are not asked about their mental health 
as frequently or really often at all by their doctors or by their uh, uh, health professionals um, as they would as they would wish. And I think if perhaps this research does anything, it sh it should encourage doctors of, of, of or health professionals of any sort to just ask those questions. It's been documented again and again and again that patients will not spontaneously reveal uh, distressing mental health symptoms that are bothering them unless they're specifically asked about. And when it comes to suicide, that's you know more important than anything. Some health professionals probably still believe that talking about suicide is dangerous because it might make the individual more likely to, to harm themselves. That has been disproved a very long time ago. And we know that when it comes to suicidal thoughts and suicidality, speaking about it, getting it out in the open is, uh, is, is absolutely essential. So I think not only should this affect the way that health professionals think about um, these problems, but also I would really hope that it encourages individuals who, are, who have experience of encephalitis, either themselves or, or, or through people that, that they know and love, to, to, to encourage an openness about these kinds of symptoms, because it's only when, when people speak about their symptoms that they can get the help they need. Yeah, thanks, Tom. And Jesus, same question to you. And I, th I think you make the point in, in your paper in particular, um, calling for um, professionals to really, you know, risk assess um, for uh, suicide and and self-harm in these patients? Yes, I, I think that there is not enough awareness of the uh, convergence between mental health problems and encephalitis. So I think the awareness has to be uh, emphasized in uh, different kind of professionals. For instance, in psychiatrists and clinicians from the field of psychology, uh, it needs to be highlighted that this problems exist and that it has to be considered uh, in, in particular cases following uh, the red flags that uh, in other pieces of research, uh, Thomas Pollock has very has researched very, very, very well. But um, the, the red flags are essential to identify uh, the cases of high risk. But then in, in the field of, of medicine, particularly in neurologists or um, professionals from the field of infectious disease, of diseases, or, or in, in the fields of internal medicine, I think there is a lack of awareness of the wide scope of neuropsychiatric problems that can appear in patients with encephalitis. And then again, th there are important prejudices in professionals and in society in general when it comes to mental health. So sometimes uh, patients with this kind of problems are um, suffer from discrimination or not the best attention. And I think this is a problem in gl globally and all around the wor world, but certainly it is a problem in Latin America or in uh, my own country, no, in, in Mexico. So, so I think uh, the awareness must be um, uh, emphasized in, in many different kinds of professionals and of course in society in general. Thanks, Jesus. Well, let's hope that, that the, the work that both of you have, have driven forward can help contribute towards that. Tom, remembering this podcast will be listened um, to and viewed by people all over the world. Um, broadly speaking, if someone's listening to the pod podcast and having problems with their mental health, 
what should we recommend that they do? What what next steps could they do once they've finished listening to this this podcast? Yeah, that's a great question, and and I think you know there are some more generic answers and some that are perhaps more specific to the individual country or place that the person is residing. And I think the first one is just very general, and this relates a little bit to what Pizzas was just talking about, sort of stigma and and and, and difficulties about mental health. Talking about it in in general is. You know, we we know that talking about the, one's problems is often the most difficult part of the process, um, and we know that certain groups are going to find this harder than others. For whatever reason, for men to speak up about mental health problems almost universally is more difficult. Uh, there are effects of age. Um, there are differences between different cultural groups about how how taboo it is or how easy it is to speak about um, particular kinds of mental health problems. But all the evidence suggests that once that conversation is started, not only can it begin a process in the individual, but it can also begin a process of seeking appropriate help. So I think if, if, if someone is suffering from mental health problems of any kind, um, they should see a professional um, as you know, as well as talking about it with, with their loved ones and with trusted people, they should see a professional. And in many countries, that's what we call a general practitioner, a GP or a family doctor. I think we call it in, in, in the States um, or in countries where you can see perhaps a mental health professional like a psychiatrist directly. Then, of course, that's that's you know very Im important to do. Of course, if, if someone is just about to see their neurologist or another sort of specialist that they are due to see anyway, then it's very important to, to, to raise the issues with them um, when they see them. If someone is experiencing uh, difficulties that are really difficult, that they just aren't able to cope with, and they feel uh, suicidal, that they might actually do something to harm themselves, they feel that harm might come to themselves or even to their loved ones or people around them, then this is actually something that the emergency services um, are going to be able to help with. And I think in that situation, you call the emergency services or you take yourself down to your, your, your local A&E or emergency de department. Um, you know, these, these places are open 24 seven and nobody in these settings is ever going to complain that somebody suffering from mental health symptoms has presented uh, asking for help. It's what we do, it's why we're paid. Thanks, thank you, Tom. Well, look, we're coming to the end of this podcast um, and I wondered if there was anything either of you wished that I'd asked or that you wanted to add. So I'll start with Jesus. Um, is there anything you want to add before I, I finish up with some final words? No, I, I would just like to say that um, thank you very much for, for inviting me and and for uh, bringing up this um, these issues of mental health and its relationship with encephalitis, because uh, we can all suffer from mental health problems or brain disease. So we better be open about it as a society and be uh, uh, to, to remember the value of uh, solidarity you know, in, in, in these issues. So that, that's all. Thank you, Jesus. Tom? Well, I think just to, just to emphasize that, you know, for, for so long, in this country at least, and I think in most of the Western world, there's this real distinction between mental health and physical health. And to the extent that we have hospitals which are for physical health problems, hospitals that are for mental health problems, they often have, they're usually in different places, they have different funding, you have different training to work there. 
And encephalitis is just an amazing example of how those distinctions are totally arbitrary and how actually, you know, if you become unwell, you're going to need help from both sides. But there are structural problems here. You know, this, this kind of slightly, you know, this philosophical distinction that we all have in our heads, or at least many of us do, it has real life implications. And some of those are, you know, problems in actually getting help. It's it's not unusual for me to try and refer a patient to, to mental health services and to be told, well, I'm afraid we don't have provision for them because they've got a brain problem. And, you know, going into the, not going into the 21st century, but, you know, a, a fair way into the 21st century, a quarter of the way in, we really shouldn't be thinking like this anymore. And I think it's only when we can, can get rid of this way of thinking that people are going to get the kind of help that they really need. Oh, thank you. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the podcast is going out on World Encephalitis Day or World Encephalitis Day, wherever you're living in the world. But I have to ask you both. I hope you've both got something red that you're going to be wearing for World Encephalitis Day. Ah, good. OK. I keep it with me everywhere I go. Of course you do. <laughs> Jesus, we're going to be. Um, unfortunately, there's been a massive cyber attack in the UK on our post office and we're not able to post anything out of uh, in, internationally. So we're going to have to rely upon you to be wearing red on the 22nd of February. OK, um, it's critical and um, there is severe punishments if people don't. <laughs> No, and, and I'll also I'll invite uh, all my colleagues in the Institute of Neurology and other colleagues to to wear that color that day. Brilliant. We want to see the photos of that. We want to see them on social media. And I, I need you to email them into us because, um, as, as Tom knows, we uh, put together um, all the different labs around the world and uh, who are going to be they send us in their pictures wearing red. So please, please do that. Tom, I understand you're also jumping on a plane the day after World Encephalitis Day and going to see Jesus in Mexico. What are you going to be doing there? Uh, yeah, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, it's a very kind invitation from Jesus to to join his group out there. Um, so I'm going to be giving a talk about some of the, the the research that I've done on on encephalitis and mental health and, and the sort of issues that we spoke about today. Um, hopefully, get a chance to see the institution that Jesus works at, see the way that they assess the patients. Um, hopefully, steal some of his best practice uh, and. With any luck, although it will be two days later, we can paint the town red uh, after all of that um, for World Encephalitis Day. Sounds amazing. And I'm awaiting my invitation to Mexico, Jesus. I'm sure it will come soon. <laughs> Not that I'm jealous. Sure, we're, we're planning something in the Mayan Riviera, Cancun or something like that for you. Oh, I'm there already. <laughs> I'm there. Um, thank you both. We're in the Pacific. <laughs> um, thank you both for taking the time to join us on the encephalitis podcast today thank you to all of our listeners of the encephalitis podcast as well as i mentioned at the beginning of the podcast please see the links attached to the description of this podcast for information and resources surrounding mental health and encephalitis it was as i said earlier a difficult to 
decision to focus on uh, the risk around mental health, self-harm, and in some cases, suicide for our media campaign during World Encephalitis Day. But I think, and I hope that people agree, the research from Tom and Jesus and their teams, we believe is far too important to be ignored. Our hope, as both Tom and Jesus have mentioned, is to shine a light on this issue and that a lot of the problems associated with mental health are preventable and in many cases, highly treatable. So that's a really important take home message that we want all of you listening to this to know. Be finally, before we go, I want to say a few words about World Encephalitis Day. This is the 10th anniversary of our global awareness campaign. When we started in 2014, it was a much smaller affair. Today, we hope to reach tens of millions of people across the world and through radio, television and social media. To see World Encephalitis Day become such a success in such a short space of time fills me with a great deal of happiness. So many people have helped us to reach this point, and I want to take the opportunity to thank all of you on behalf of everyone at the Encephalitis Society. So thank you all. Remember to get involved. Wear something red. Take those selfies and post them on your social media using the hashtag red for wed. The Encephalitis Society remains at your service. And if you need any support or information, our teams are there for you. Go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat to one of the team online. We hope that you've enjoyed the podcast as ever. And as always, if you can support our life-saving work, we would be extremely grateful. You can go to encephalitis.info forward slash donate. Other than that, happy World Encephalitis Day, everybody. Enjoy yourselves and know if you are struggling, there is help out there and uh, and we can help you source that. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.